tuned to Tidings, and I'm Hazel Kahn. Today, my guest is Michelle Berry Lane. First of all, welcome to Tidings and to WPKN. Thank you so much, Hazel. It's great to be here with you today. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to our conversation. You and I came to be in the same place at the same time, in the last of a series of four Illich conversations last November. I came there because of my connection to Dugald Hine, whose work I've been following for years as he's become an important voice about modernity and living among the end of the world ruins and system collapse, and who I've actually interviewed more than once on on this radio show. The fourth of these Illich conversations referenced Ivan Illich's Tools for Conviviality, The series was convened by David Benjamin Blower and Marcus Rempel, and you were one of the show's two guests. And I was intrigued by what you were saying, so I left you a message in the Zoom chat box, hoping to connect with you for an interview on my radio program, and that's where we are today. Mm -hmm. So again, I'm so happy to have you. But I'd like you just to begin to tell our listeners, how did you actually come to be in that Illich conversation? And what about your personal and professional lives brought you there? I know you live in Southeast Michigan Mm. and were born into a scientific household. Talk more about your background. David Benjamin Blower was part of the Nomad podcast for people who are deconstructing religion. You know, there's a large movement in Christianity to deconstruct some of the ideas and uh, containers for religion that have felt less than positive or flourishing for many people. I was interested in the podcast and began following him and his music, started supporting him on Patreon, and we started writing back and forth occasionally. As a follower, I was invited to participate in the fourth conversation, which was about conviviality and contingency. I did grow up in a scientific household. My mother was a biologist and a poet. My stepfather was a physical chemist. My father came from many generations of farming and was a draftsman, a varied group of parents, essentially. I became very deeply connected with living creatures and nature, being outside. And that was where I truly felt at home was when I was outside. And I I really received that from all three of my parents. Campers, hikers, farmers, loving nature, loving animals. That has been a primary orientation in my life since I since I can remember. I was awash in connection with the natural world. It took me a while to figure out what I wanted to do in college, and I focused on science education. It was a natural fit for me. I had such a great wonder about the world and how the world worked. And I really wanted to share that with children. So I became a science teacher for elementary age. Mm -hmm. And I was lucky enough to get a job right out of college in a small Quaker school in Detroit. And then I landed in another independent school called the Roper School, which is founded by Holocaust survivors, focused on on the self-actualization of children So that was a fascinating place to work for about 22 years. We had a wooded campus, the Bagdad, with a creek that ran through. 
So we had little trails back there and I got the kids outside as much as I possibly could. So we did a lot of outdoor study and activities. Your professional life then took place the same place where you grew up pretty much? Yeah, pretty much. I've lived in Southeast Michigan my whole life. Mm. Uh, I really fell in love with the state of Michigan. I have read some of your work on Substack and on Medium. So could you tell our listeners what you'd write about on these platforms? Perhaps one of the most basic truths about us as human beings are that we're creatures. We're animals that are alive only because there are other living things here on this earth. We would not be able to sustain our lives without them. We are utterly interdependent. And many of us have completely forgotten about this reality. Somehow, we need to remember that we belong to one another. We're part of a vast web of diverse life that includes us, and we're not able to thrive or survive without being a thread in that tapestry. My work is focused on shedding light on the problem and issuing an invitation to consciously bring ourselves back into relationship with the living world. We must remember ourselves to the earthly household. How did we get to this place? I think we can see that all of the ecological and societal imbalances that threaten us right now began when people developed an idea of conquest and a hunger for power and material gain. This became the project of capitalism, eventually. Religion became a tool of empire and pure objectivism and the Enlightenment, as expressed in the work of Rene Descartes and Francis Bacon in the 1500s, enabled the idea that the earth is only viewed as a resource to extract from. And that enables clear-cutting ancient forests for lumber and modern industrial agriculture. The enslavement of other humans also became the project of capitalism. We separated humans into categories and then develop theories like eugenics. Mm. One of the projects of capitalism is to parse things out into components or pieces to break things down, essentially. Mm. And that's all about separating things from one another. So if we look at things from a more whole lens and we think about ecology, Ecology comes from a Greek root, oikos, which literally is the word for home or household. So when we're looking at the ecology of the earth, which is essentially all one ecology where every living being is contributing to the whole in some way, both benefiting and also offering. There are, we call them ecosystem services in ecology. Every living thing offers services to the whole and receives what they need for their survival. People who are doing this work as ecologists or botanists or dendrologists, Suzanne Simard is a person who studies trees, Mm -hmm. and she found evidence to support the idea that trees were sharing nutrients underground. She was able to show that carbon atoms were going from one, she could mark them radioactively and then find them coming up in another set of roots, Hmm. showing that trees were connecting in this way. And Lynn Margulis was doing her work in the mostly 80s. She was a microbiologist studying archaeon bacteria, which are the first life forms on earth. 
The idea was that symbiosis was the impetus for evolution. Lynn Margulis at first was laugh at, yeah, yeah, whatever. We know, you know, this is Darwinism. Competition actually drives evolution. Symbiosis and relationship are not what drives evolution. It's competition. Mm -hmm. But eventually, her theory has become the most accepted in terms of the driving force behind evolution. And that competition actually plays a minor role. Relationship is, is really the way for best survival and thriving. You can survive or you can survive and thrive. And it's really through relationship that you will thrive. In order to thrive, we must have health. And relationship helps us be healthy. I'd like to talk a bit about Ivan Illich and the word conviviality. I was thinking about convivial, applied to usually a human being, is somebody who's pleasant and nice and maybe has a bit of fellowship attached to him or her. But it didn't seem like a very big word. And suddenly when I entered this, this new group of people that I had discovered, they were all talking about conviviality, which then turns out to be a gigantic word. Maybe some of our listeners will also feel the way I've just described myself. Ivan Illich spoke a lot about the concept of conviviality and the importance of it for thriving and living our best lives. And convivial literally means with life, if you look at the etymology of it. Romans used the word convivium to mean feast. And so we're literally talking about living as a feast, coming to the table with all of the guests and thriving there together. I imagine all the earthly creatures together thriving in conviviality. Ivan Illich mostly talked about conviviality among humans and how we might make thriving lives in mutuality together. He talked about the importance of autonomy, that people within a convivial society still needed autonomy within their deep connection to their community, but that no autonomy was more valuable than any other. He talked about joyful sobriety and liberating austerity. This is recognizing that we belong to one another. So if we are formed in a place of conviviality and not, say, competition and power over, but power with, if we relate in the sense that we are mutual powers, we are mutual beings that care about the flourishing not only of ourselves but of others. In a society that values conviviality, we engage in mutual ways. Nobody's needs are more important than anybody else's. You could say that's communism, right? What I would say is it's maybe more uh, anarchic than communism. Mm -hmm in the sense that nobody's dictating, but people are making their way in a flourishing way together. From what I understand, I'm you know new to Ivan Illich. I'm not a, I'm not a scholar of his work. His idea is, is an ideal. Mostly, people have no idea to go about doing that because we've been so separated from each other for so long. Ivan Illich points out too, in an industrial capitalistic society, Many people have sort of meaningless work. You know, it's serving a machine. It's not serving a thriving community. In fact, it's depleting community 
Well, one of the things with modernity and the the machine age, if you will, is that people don't know how to do these flourishing things. We've forgotten. We've forgotten. You have uh, this phrase, which I think is yours, about neighboring on a purpose. Is that your phrase? No, actually, that came from Samuel, who was also part of the um, Illich Conversations but I picked it up and I talked about it in that fourth conversation, oh, it, neighboring on purpose. What he's alluding to is we have to be intentional about this. We are not born into a society mm-hmm. that is going to model for us how to be in thriving community with other beings. We just aren't there, not in our Western industrial capitalistic society. We need to restore our humanity. We've sort of lost touch with what it means to be deeply human together. We're so separated. And I know all this sounds very idealistic, but there are there are deep truths that we can learn from attending to those possibilities. Perhaps more of an anarchic view of this. You know, people think of anarchism as being as a destructive force, but at its core, the idea, it's autonomy with others. Maybe this sounds idealistic, but go back to Darwin, maybe. It's, we are talking about survival. Yes. Because late-stage capitalism is a very destructive force, and collapse is all around us. At the heart of it is survival. Because as climate change continues to affect us on a daily basis, one or other of us humans and animals and creatures and trees and buildings, we have to think about survival. We are in a watershed time to keep doing things the way we've been doing things is just going to continue to destroy what's necessary for life. Things Mm -hmm. are very tenuous. Michelle Berry Lane is talking about separation and conviviality. This is Hazel Kahn with Tidings on WPKN Radio. There is no techno fix. We're going to have to rediscover a human scale of living. A human scale of living means you've got to take everybody else into account. Yes. Somehow. That's right. And not only everyone else in the human world. No. We have to stop separating the human world from the world of all the other creatures. We didn't really talk about contingency, but that word contingent, etymologically, it's with touch, entwine, entwinement. It's it's really about interdependence. Our lives are contingent upon the lives of others. Without them, we don't survive even. In a contingent relationship in community, we're interdependent. These are all words that one knows, but this exercise is a new way of looking at those words. That's right. Yeah. Another one is remembering. If you take it apart and you look at it etymologically, it's we are remembering ourselves. So when we think about communities in terms of conviviality and contingency, we're also remembering ourselves to the community. We're actually going deeper into our membership. Yeah. This work of creating convivial existence and and living in conviviality is also partly remembering ourselves to each other. 
I, I really want you to talk about the biome and, and the creatures, because I know that you, you've called it mind-blowing. Yeah, the human microbiome is absolutely mind-blowing to me. The fact that we have more microbial cells in our body than when we do have human body cells was such a mind-expanding revelation to me when I when I learned about this. To think that we literally cannot have access to nutrients without these tiny microbes in our body, communities of them living in our digestive tract, actually enabling those nutrients to be available for our uptake so that we can use them. We cannot live without our human microbiome. And sadly, it's actually quite depleted. Uh, scientists have suggested that with every successive generation, there are less and less of them. And we receive our microbiomes from our mothers in childbirth first, and then a continued receipt through breastfeeding. We literally inherit these bodily. We receive them from our mothers. And then we also gather them from the environment. We've got this living culture inside of us fed through the foods that we eat. If we don't eat foods that are healthy for our microbiome, organisms begin to die. We lose uh, members of our own ecosystem in that way. Processed diets high in sugar are really unhealthy both for us and for our microbiome. The microbiome works in tandem with our immune system. The first line of defense are the microbes in our gut. The other thing is very deep connection between your brain and your gut. And some of the compounds that microbes in your gut produce as they are processing nutrients have a chemical structure very similar to some of the antidepressants and things that are now being prescribed to people. Mm -hmm. Conviviality really does cover all of these things. It really does. We're talking about conviviality with microbes. Like yeah. we, we truly can't survive without them, actually. There are people who are gravely ill who lose their, their microbiome, and they, they're actually doing fecal transplants. Mm. Maybe they've had to have everything wiped for a bone marrow transplant or something like that. They can have fecal transplants to begin to grow a microbial system in their bodies. Mm. Conviviality. It's very comforting in a way to know that such a concept, such a reality exists. Do you understand what I'm saying? I do. Wendell Berry said conviviality is healing. To be healed, we must come with all the other creatures to the feast of creation, which I think is, is just a beautiful image. Mm. Berry also said that a place and all its creatures are the smallest unit of health. We cannot just live you know, on a patch of grass surrounded by concrete and expect to thrive, <laughs> you yeah. know. Two thoughts I'm just having as, as we're talking. One was COVID kept everybody out of conviviality because they were separated, right? People always use COVID as a marker. That was before COVID, that was after COVID. It's right in the middle of COVID. So it had a very traumatic effect psychologically. Most of that was that people were separated from each other. And they couldn't thrive. So um, that's conviviality kind of in action in a way. Another thing, right. when you mentioned Patreon, which is basically supporting your 
your colleagues and your friends mainly writing. That is a very convivial thing to do. Absolutely. So are these other things that have that have emerged, like Substack or like Patreon? Yeah, you're, absolutely. That's right. You know, Substack is a very convivial place. Yeah, circumventing and all the old ways of doing it. Maybe these are responses to you know, the late stages of capitalism. I believe it is. People take things into their own hands when systems begin to break down. You know, it all has become too wieldy and it wasn't built out of a spirit of conviviality to begin with. Mm. It was built in the spirit of self-gain. I'm talking about the project of capitalism. Mm -hmm. It's really about power over control of resources. You get these caste systems, for example, of you know genocide that all comes out of a desire to have power over and control. Competition for what we believe are scarce resources, because that's the way they've been framed. Creating a system of Creating, scarcity. Exactly. Right. We really should end shortly, but you we haven't talked about the bees. Okay. I am working with a small local organization, which is very convivial. We're doing direct work in our community, supporting people in planting native for restoration of ecologies. So pollinators are incredibly important. 80% of our flowering plants are pollinated through pollinators. Our native bees are much more effective pollinators than honeybees are. Honeybees are good for some things, but our native bees are pollinating more than just industrial crops. Mm -hmm. There's a whole list of plants, for example, the potato, tomatoes, peppers, melons, blueberries, strawberries, raspberries, all pollinated by native bumblebees not by honeybees. Mm -hmm. The shape of the flower is only accessible through the action. The, the bumblebees do this little vibrating thing and they get into the flower in order to shake the pollen off of the stamens, mm -hmm. so off of the anthers. They're the only known pollinator for, for potatoes, for example. Mm. So if we didn't have our native bees, we would have ecosystem collapse because our insects are like the backbone of our ecosystems. So the only way to have pollinators thrive is to have native plants because native plants are host plants for our pollinators. They need them for laying their eggs. They need them for their whole life cycle, not only their pollen and their nectar, but also the leaves for larval stages. So you cannot have monarch butterflies if you don't have milkweed. Bees are very convivial with the flowers. Actually, bees enable the flowers to have sex. There would be no flower sex. There would be no pollination for most of the plants without the bees getting in there and shaking things up and carrying the pollen from flower to flower. That is an element of conviviality. Mm. It cannot be done by oneself. It's only done in community with others as part of the ecology, right? Mm -hmm. So the relationship between bees and flowers is a convivial relationship. Mm -hmm. All of ecology is convivial. Everything is tied to everything else. 
and the way humans enter into this in our project that we're working on, as we begin to realize that our lawns are deserts for mm. our beneficial insects, mm -hmm. they literally cannot receive sustenance from a green lawn. Most of them are sprayed with pesticides in suburban areas, and that also actively kills insects. When human beings enter into convivial relationship ecologically with the other creatures ought to be living where we're also living, then we become a part of that thriving relationship. There is convivial science too, right? There's science that's truly working to help us understand what we need for thriving, what the world needs for thriving. Microbiologists who are learning all this stuff, who are understanding things about fungi and bacteria and other microbes and these deep symbiotic connections. And this is important science for mm -hmm. us terms of understanding the remedies for what we can do. And I'm not talking about techno remedies. I'm talking about, aha, I understand why I shouldn't eat Twinkies every day for lunch, right? I should be eating what's really a human diet instead of a diet that's been created by capitalism mm -hmm. so that we crave sugars and salts and mm -hmm. processed fats that are are really poison to our bodies and the things that are living in our bodies that are really helping us be alive. These health crises that we're experiencing, it's because we don't really know how to be human anymore. Mm. We don't know how to eat like humans ate before we had all this processed stuff that we pay for. Capitalism provides us with these diets because we've forgotten how to be satisfied with other things. We've essentially given up our agency by participating in the capitalist system. As we have this convivial science that's focused on connections and relationship, right? Mm -hmm. That helps us understand how things are working. We used to intuit it through relationship. Now, because we've been cut off from what's life-promoting, we're seeking it. And science is one way that we're receiving understanding. We can start to make choices instead of just going along with, you know, the waves originating through industry. Science that is involved in the capitalist project that purposely inserts mm. substances into processed foods that create addictions. And they know that if they put this in there, people will eat more of it because they've studied human behavior, mm -hmm. human biochemistry, the human brain, and they understand how to manipulate it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That, it's the opposite of conviviality. In mm -hmm. fact, you're bordering on evil, mm -hmm. <laughs> like true evil. Mm -hmm. I was thinking that convivial scientists are people who already understand conviviality. They go in and do their project with a convivial mindset. They already know that. Mutual good. Yeah. Yeah. Mutual benefit. And they're like uh, Suzanne Simard and Lynn Margulis and many, many, many others are often scoffed at, deal with ridicule. But then eventually they prevailed and people are now recognizing this as true and cutting edge science, actually. 
Thank you very much, Michelle Berry Lane, for spending this time with us and telling us about new ways of understanding what's wrong with us. Before we end, though, please tell our listeners how they can get in touch with you and your work. My current writing is available on the Substack platform. I have a newsletter called Coming to Ground. I also have a lot of poetry and a few essays on the Medium platform. And again, you can find me just Michelle Barry Lane. I'm also working on a book manuscript about rerouting ourselves with kinship of all earthly life as a fellow participant in the convivial flourishing of the earthly community. If they're interested in emailing me, they can reach me at berrywoman, B-E-R-R-Y-W-O-M-A-N, 08 at gmail. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you. I look forward to continuing this encounter, which, as I see it, has been informed from the beginning by conviviality. Thank you. You've been listening to Michelle Berry Lane talking about separation and conviviality. You can hear tidings right here at this time and any time at all on hazelkahn.com. If you've enjoyed this interview and the many others from WPKN's great programmers, we would love you to donate at wpkn.org so that we can create more interviews for you. Thank you very much. I'm Hazel Kahn.